This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss medical misdiagnoses with Mr. Paul Eppner, the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of the Society Improved Diagnosis in Medicine, or SIDM. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mr. Eppner's bio is posted, of course, on the podcast website. Briefly on background, 20 years ago last month, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academies of Science, published the landmark study, To Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System. The report found upwards of 98,000 people die each year in hospitals alone as a result of medical errors that include misdiagnoses. Medical error-related mortality may be substantially higher. For example, in 2016, Johns Hopkins researchers estimated deaths caused by errors at upwards of 250,000 annually, making it or would make it the third leading cause of mortality. Regardless of the exact number, diagnostic error is a substantial contributor. Defined as a wrong, delayed, or misdiagnosis, misdiagnoses continue to constitute a major public health problem, adversely affecting more than 12 million annually, approximately one-third of whom are seriously harmed and an estimated 40 to 80,000 die each year from diagnostic failures in hospitals alone. Resulting costs are estimated at over $100 billion annually. Again, with me to discuss medical misdiagnoses and potential policy solutions is the Society Improved Diagnosis in Medicine, Paul Eppner. So with that, Paul, as a background or introduction, let me begin by asking you if you could provide a brief overview of your society. Sure, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, CIDM, as we called it, or the longer name Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, really is an outgrowth of a small number of researchers who came together back in the 2006 through 8 timeframe, just feeling like this was an immense problem and no one was paying attention to it. Uh, there were several years of conferences, and finally in 2011, uh, Dr. Mark Graber and myself uh, incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit to focus on to focus globally on this problem. And the organization um, has grown uh, in both uh, the work we do and the number of people doing that work. Uh, we focus in five specific areas. Uh, one is building awareness and engagement because. This is still a problem people don't understand or are even aware of in many ways. We are trying to drive increased funding for research, and we can talk more about that if you want later. Um, we are driving practice improvement. What can health systems do today to improve the diagnostic quality and safety? Um, and we are uh, very involved with engaging patients in all things that we are doing. And then finally, the fifth strategic pillar is all around transforming the way we engage physicians or educate physicians and other uh, practitioners uh, in their training. So those are our five core uh, 
print our core activities and uh, the National Academy of Science report I think you mentioned uh, actually was one that our organization petitioned for and helped do substantial fundraising for. Okay, thank you. Uh, before we go to uh, any of these five or solution possibilities, let's, let me stay with the problem for a moment. Um, I have three questions. To what extent does the problem persist uh, or go unrecognized or unaddressed uh, due to the fact that we no longer routinely perform autopsies? Um, you know, that's, that's a part of a bigger problem, and the bigger problem is the lack of feedback, the lack of calibration. Very few physicians ever hear about the diagnostic uh, quality and safety issues of the diagnostic errors that they've experienced. Emergency room physicians rarely uh, get any feedback on patients who have gone through their doors and yet a different diagnosis is made. Uh, autopsy is, is thought of as the gold standard, but mm -hmm. of course, one, you have to be dead for that to happen, and many diagnostic errors don't lead to that, although too many do. So uh, I think what we're talking about is a bigger problem of lack of feedback. Autopsy is one of the mechanisms for getting that, and we believe, as does the National Academy, that there should be more autopsies done, not less. Okay, thank you. My second question is, there's obviously been a revolution in imaging technology. Um, so that would lead one to think that um, we'd get more precise and accurate in our diagnoses. I noted that um, we now are on the verge or starting to realize 3D imaging. There is a nuclear where a patient swallows an element uh, that can be tracked. There are wearables uh, that provide information. So I would have to think that more precise imaging technology would help in the accuracy of diagnosis, but it doesn't seem, I don't see much literature on how that's uh, reducing the problem. Why is that? Well, it's both reducing the problem and increasing the problem. So especially in a fee-for-service world where there's a, a lot of um, um, concern about uh, um, over-testing, there is pressure to reduce the use of imaging. There's also, with things like CT scans, there's potential radiation harm to the patient if it was inappropriate. Uh, no test is 100% perfect, so the more tests you run on inappropriate patients, in other words, where there's low pretest probability, um, the more likely it is that the result you get will not be an accurate representation of what's going on. And so, yes, we've gained great uh, uh, resolution with some of the new um, technologies, and we expect that to continue, and that will be an aid. But it still means, first, you have to um, order on the appropriate patient. You have to also look for the appropriate um, um, lesions or other things that are being searched for. And then you have to have the proper follow-up. And, and certainly in the case of uh, incidental findings, um, often there is not the follow-up, and that leads to the diagnostic error. It's not the, the technology, not that it wasn't catchable, but that 
it wasn't recognized and acted upon, which has nothing to do with the technology. Mm-hmm. So it's the classic, it's not the technology, it's the use of the technology. And also, Yeah, absolutely. Now, the technology, again, it may be an inappropriate use. Uh, there are many people who will use CT scans as a first uh, um, uh, first test in the emergency room with a, a potential stroke patient, whereas the literature suggests that an MRI might be a more effective uh, um, imaging test than than a CT. And in fact, potentially neither of them have to be used with a patient presenting with dizziness. But so again, it's it's not only the quality of the technology, but the as you said the appropriate use of it. And then, of course, there's the concern or issue of false positives. I did have one third question here. And do we have any idea uh, what extent or to what magnitude? And this is also a health disparities issue. Well, it's very definitely a disparity issue. Now, in terms of numbers, no, we don't have enough numbers on the entire problem to begin with. It's all sampling. Uh, it's case study review, et cetera. But we can, we certainly know um, that where there is a low pretest probability, for instance, if a, if a high school or college student comes to the emergency room um, with uh, evidence or symptoms of a potential stroke, most often it'll be considered to be a drug issue or something else. We we know that that has occurred. We deal with some of the families that have experienced that. And so because it's not expected in that age population, uh, age becomes an issue. In older patients, we know that there are problems with a lot of comorbidities and chronic conditions, and recognizing a new problem is often a delayed process. In, in there's racial disparities. Uh, we are studying this right now under a grant uh, in partnership with Stanford, uh, what we call our visual disparities, uh, race, age, and gender. Um, we can see in, in uh, maternal mortality issues um, is, are especially high in black people. Uh, we've seen in stroke uh, data that that black people have a disproportionate missed or delayed diagnosis. We know that women present in an atypical way with uh, heart attacks with MIs often. Instead of chest pain, it might be an arm pain. And so there are very definitely disparity issues, and there is data on all of them, just not quantitative as much as we'd like. Okay, and, and I'd like to get to, you mentioned stroke, so there's an emphasis on three categories here relative to uh, the frequency of misdiagnoses being, again, vascular stroke, infections, and cancers, but we'll uh, get to that. Um, in 19, excuse me, in 2015, rather, the National Academy of Sciences had an expert committee produce a report titled Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. It made eight recommendations. Your organization uh, from my reading, worked off that document and in February 18 produced a roadmap uh, for research report. Uh, but before we get to uh, those findings, um, I thought it odd in um, the NAS report that it termed diagnostic errors a blind spot for healthcare, and it said diagnostic quality remains underfunded and the science underdeveloped. What explains those conclusions? Partially, it's infrastructure, and partially, I think it's even um, 
political, if you will, or cultural. So uh, diagnostic error is unique in that it has a heavy uh, cognitive component. It's not just working the system. Um, there's a lot that goes on in terms of clinical reasoning. Um, that's a very hard thing to measure quality of. Uh, when does uh, a diagnosis become a delay instead of just a conservative approach to, to situations? So um, th that is an issue there is just how do we characterize it when there are diagnostic adverse events in, uh, in the health system? If it's cognitive, it goes off to peer review. If it's a system problem, it goes to root cause analysis. But if you look at the way our government also is set up to fund research, NIH, as an example, tend to be um, set up around diseases or organs, but not around the process of diagnosis. There is no institute of headaches or institute of chest pain. There is no institute of dizziness. And so when you try to um, encourage these organizations to study something like uh, dizziness, um, there's there, the uh, one institute uh, who's focused on stroke said it's largely an inner ear problem. It ought to be over with the ear people, while the ear people will say, but the really consequential issues of misdiagnosis are with stroke. It ought to be with the stroke people. So we find these infrastructure issues. Our incident reporting systems and health systems don't tend to have a category for diagnostic errors. So it's hard to count in health systems. Um, and so these are just a couple of the examples where we are really underfunding and under, um, really underappreciating and, and not sufficiently focusing on the commensurate with the burden that it is. Thank you. I appreciate the cognitive process uh, comment. That's uh, critical here and important. And so this all leads to, as, it's, as the metaphor notes, uh, diagnostic uh, errors to exploit the meta uh, metaphor are the bottom of the iceberg. So let's, let's go to um, uh, the three I noted, the emphasis thereof on vascular events, stroke infections, and cancers. I'm presuming this is in part because, the emphasis is in part because these are high cost, high prevalent, and because these oftentimes involve uh, discussion of, of strokes. Uh, someone actually thinking through and, and coming up with the accurate diagnosis. Uh, so does that help explain why these are emphasized? Yes. Let me make two points about that. First, the research you're, uh, you described was done using malpractice data, at, which is one of the strongest data sets we have about diagnostic care, since we can't just sort of count them uh, using administrative data or anything like that. And it was a very large 10-year uh, sample of data from the CRICO data set. And in it, they looked at all, um, or all medical errors that uh, cause death or permanent disability, serious harms. And in that, they found that the number one cause across all medical errors was diagnostic error, and that in, uh, that was about 34% of all medical errors that caused serious harm were diagnostic. Two-thirds of those, uh, two-thirds of the diagnostic errors in the database did lead to this death or permanent disability, which was the number one rank. And then when you look within the 
all of the diagnostic errors that um, contribute to death or, or lead to death or permanent disability, 74% of them were in the three categories you mentioned, vascular, infections, and cancer, with sepsis being number one in infections, stroke being number one in vascular, and lung cancer being number one in, can in the cancer category. Um, and so that's, that was the research that led to that conclusion. Now, the other thing I will say quickly is that um, the people often ask me about rare diseases. Are diagnostic errors often rare diseases? And while rare diseases are very definitely difficult to diagnose, the big numbers we're seeing are really common diseases like sepsis, stroke, and lung cancer. Often they present with atypical presentations. So most stroke patients show up in the emergency room with some kind of paralysis or some obvious stroke symptom. It's the ones that show up with dizziness that are often missed, sent home and then come back with a stroke. So it's, again, the key issue here is it's not the common presentation that doctors miss. It's the atypical presentation of common diseases that really lead to the big numbers. Okay, and this explains on stroke the uh, woeful underuse of uh, the thrombolytic TPA for ischemic strokes. Um, so that makes that point clear. Let's let's get to um, funding. And you partially answered the question by saying um, it's difficult to get at how to research this, which is partially the answer for underfunding. But I did read uh, per NIH. This is possibly the most underfunded research area in medicine. It's something like less than $10 million or approximately $7 million. And your organization, per your opening comment, second on your list was to try to increase or improve funding. And maybe I can tie, there's a recently um, introduced a bill uh, on the House side, Improving Diagnosis in, Medi in Medicine Act of 2019. This is Lujan, New Mexico. Um, can you talk to me about where we're going relative to funding? Sure. So the number you quoted is now a, a couple years old, mm -hmm. but it is it was accurate at at the time. And what was interesting about that is that seven million dollars of federally funded research directed towards diagnosis was less than what we spend uh, on smallpox, which has been eradicated. So clearly, given a $100 billion annual problem, it's definitely underfunded. Congress has, has started to recognize it, and in our current uh, you know, fiscal year, there is $2 million, which is a small down payment, but better than it was, $2 million of new money that was added to ARC's budget um, to focus solely on uh, diagnostic error. Uh, in the current um, spending environment, there, we have no uh, spending bill for next year yet, but in the House Appropriations Committee, it, that $2 million was taken up to no less than $4 million. The Senate hasn't pr produced their appropriations report yet, and of course we're still living under a continuing resolution right now. But all of these one-year-at-a-time things is really challenging. One of the things we've been encouraging Congress to consider is the funding of centers of diagnostic excellence. 
and those take multi-year mm-hmm. funding commitments to get created. So that's why we have certainly encouraged our own representatives and, and uh, senators to consider a multi-year authorization bill. And the bill you referenced, uh, which was introduced just a few weeks ago in the House with both Democratic and Republican sponsors, um, is directed at doing just that. It, 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 um, it includes five years at a $40 million spending and puts a lot of emphasis on the creation of centers of diagnostic excellence. Now, that's not an appropriations bill. Uh, we would still need the appropriation side to, to enact that, um, but it, is, it lays the groundwork that we think is really important. And ARC, the Agency for Re- uh, Healthcare Research and Quality, is expert relative to funding and managing these centers uh, for excellence. Let me um, let me go to one of the uh, NAS National Academy recommendations in their 15 report. That was um, the final, the eighth goal or recommendation, and that was for, or excuse me, the seventh uh, design payment care delivery reform uh, recommendation. So, how might we improve payment reform uh, to um, get at or address this problem? Well, as you know, that uh, payment reform is always a challenging topic. And again, if you think about um, diagnosis, where you're starting with the presentation of a complaint from the patient and then making decisions about what to do to identify the explanation for the, the problem and then to develop a treatment path, that may or may not involve a lot of procedures that can be billed for. It does allow, it does require time for evaluation and management. It may require um, efforts of including consultation with laboratory or radiology, and there are other ways that um, one needs to consider diagnosis. So our payment system is not today set up to support an optimum outcome. Um, and those are changes we are just starting to talk to various experts about how to move forward on that. Um, but there is no clear indication of what the right answers will be other than we need to ensure that physicians are um, incented to take the time and consider the possibilities, order the tests they need without over-ordering. And the, re- and the payment system just will need to be changed to certainly um, uh, see those come into action, into fruition. Yes, thank you. And just to note uh, the recommendation specifically, it reads or states that uh, CPT codes uh, account for or reimburse for uh, not currently coded or covered services, including time spent by pathologists, radiologists, and other clinicians in advising, ordering clinicians on the selection, use, and interpretation of diagnostic testing for specific patients. So clearly under-recognized, under-reimbursed, and helps explain uh, the situation uh, we're in. Another way to get at this, of course, are uh, how we measure care quality. So this begs the uh, quality measurement uh, issue or question. You're probably well aware that uh, the National um, Quality Forum, NQF, has been doing some preliminary work. Just uh, actually about a month ago, five weeks ago, they published 
an environmental scan, improving diagnostic quality and safety, uh, reducing diagnostic error measuring considerations. So it's just trying to create a, um, a template as to how to do this. They came up with several um, types uh, or framework measured domains uh, relative to diagnostic accuracy and diagnostic efficiency seems to be those that predominate. Where are we and how far, how far do we have to go maybe in uh, trying to address this via quality measurement? Well, we, we have to go a long way. Nice. Um, with NQF, National Quality Forum, as you just said, they're still tr- trying to lay out the framework, looking at measured concepts, um, trying to figure out how they will differentiate not only accuracy or inaccuracy, um, but also delays, what's appropriate in terms of delays. You know, it's it's sort of like the old Supreme Court's uh, issue about obscenity and pornography mm-hmm. where they said, um, I don't know how to define it, but I certainly know it when I see right, it. Right, yes. And, and it, I think delays in diagnosis are similar. It's hard to prospectively say how much time something should take, but you know when you see an example of delayed diagnosis, it's obvious at that time. Um, so the measures work needs to continue. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation made a commitment just a little over a year ago to invest $86 million over six years into this field, and a significant component of that will go towards catalyzing and developing measures, and they will not do it single-handedly, but they're trying to uh, certainly create an impetus around measure development uh, with the notion that without measures, it will be hard to measure current status and then to assess effectiveness of interventions uh, that w- that are tried. So we need those measures, and we don't have them yet. The I'm glad you mentioned the Moore Foundation money because relative to your previous comment about funding, uh, that's a huge uh, uh, a change here in uh, trying to uh, get at this. Um, you know, just as a, a quick aside, in my intro I said uh, misdiagnoses are defined as wrong, delayed, or missed. Um, I would say that delayed may be the most common between and amongst these three. Well, um, again, without good measures, right. it's, it's hard. probably hard to say. There are people who say missed is not a category, but just a reflection of delayed, mm-hmm. uh, because ultimately it will be found, and if it's not found, it won't. We won't know it's missed. Right. Um, so many people and the National Academy's definition really reflects only on accuracy and timeliness, and they added a third component: communication to patients. Uh, as the three key operational terms associated with diagnostic error. Okay, I do. I do want to ask. Um, you just conferenced uh, in DC a few weeks ago. Uh, yep. I, I did read through the conference program, and let's just say it was substantive, uh, to say the least. I think there were probably a hundred presenters, uh, at least, uh, during this conference. Is there anything? Uh, relative to the conference presentations that stand out or that you would like to highlight? Well, uh, our conference is pretty exciting in that it is cross-cutting. Most healthcare professionals go to the meetings of their own specialty, and it's not often that they go to a meeting 
with such a heavy emphasis on cognition and systems, on research, on practice improvement, and on policy. And that includes risk managers, quality managers, patients, clinical educators, clinicians of varying sorts, emergency room, family, etc. So it's a very cross-cutting conference, which makes it really stimulating. Um, we also, by virtue of having it in D.C. this year, had a number of healthcare care uh, federal um, uh, employees and think tanks. We had Michelle Schreiber from CMS, who's in charge of the measurement, the quality measurement portfolio there. We had um, Mark McClellan talking about the potential for payment reform. Um, we had uh, a sitting senator come to our lunch and g give remarks on the importance of this area. So it's hard to single out any one particular presentation um, because there were so many around the value of improved diagnosis mm -hmm. and and embryonic thoughts about nascent thoughts about measurement etc but it was uh, reflected a 25 percent growth over last year so it was really well attended and the rave reviews congratulations uh, my last question uh, for you paul is somewhat standard um sadly patient engagement is 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 not what we would like to see it to be in the clinical practice setting, you know, the old rap was uh, the industry teaches learned helplessness. Um, how could, what's your advice? You talked about communications, so you hinted at that. How might patients become more aware, engaged, and uh, assist in improving accuracy of diagnosis? Oh, they're a critical member of that healthcare team. As you can imagine, they are the repository for so much of the information. In the process of diagnosis, physicians need history, physical findings, but they also need descriptions of the symptoms and not just abdominal pain, as an example, but what makes it better, what makes it worse, uh, what time of day, during what positions. Um, there's so much information, and the patients don't know what is helpful. So this collaborative relationship between the patient and the physician is so critically important. The physicians need to understand that they have a responsibility to partner with the patient in the elicitation of information. But it goes so much beyond that because patients will remind us of what are the outcomes that matter. And, and so whether it's doing research or quality improvement or setting policy, if that patient voice is missing, we are too often left with people who are just from an academic perspective or, or whatever, just really focused on solving a problem that's of interest to them as opposed to of critical importance to the patients who are experiencing the problem. So we as a society certainly believe and, and act out the notion that patients should be involved in everything, and we have taken quite a few steps to ensure that will happen. Yes, yeah, so uh, learning is iterative. It's a social, inherently a social process. So thank you uh, for that. So with that, uh, Paul, we're at our time. But I appreciate this overview of a very important subject. I hope the Congress uh, can move uh, what you described, an increase in funding. And I wish you every success. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. This is definitely the most 
common, the most catastrophic, and most costly of all medical errors. So it certainly needs the attention that you just described. And well-deserved, yes. Thanks again. Okay. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.